All right, so um, as you finish up your snacks and make your way back to your seat, just want to briefly introduce myself. My name is Hansley Massat, and I serve on staff here at Church on Mill as the director of music. Um, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to, to be here. I'm grateful for Chuck and his leadership and um, also the opportunity that he's provided me to continue on in this Disciple Makers Intensive. Um, and in particular, we're now going to focus on the segment of this intensive called Your Place. And what we're going to do together is we're going to take a look at what your specific role, what your specific place within the collective local church is as an individual. And we're also going to do this by focusing on one particular passage. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be camping out in verses 7 through 11. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Now, it may be obvious, given the focal point of only one passage, yet it's worth mentioning a few things pertaining to the parameters and the limitations of what we are going to do now for the next 40 minutes or so. First of all, the book of 1 Peter and the passage we're going to be looking at in chapter 4 is not the only passage relating to spiritual gifts. And more broadly and importantly, it's also not by any means the only passage that has relevance to your specific role within the local church. And so this is not going to be by any means an exhaustive list of what God requires of each church member. Rather, we're going to take a look at a series of foundational elements that ought to be a part of your role within the church. And as Chuck mentioned, our vision here at Church on Mill is to be faithful to the revelation of God as he's revealed it. And so these foundational elements are true for every true believer in whatever context they find themselves in by way of a local church. And so um, we'll be looking at the text and by way of implication, deriving at a few foundational truths as it relates to your place within the church. Sounds good? All right, let's dig in. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. It says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnest, earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me briefly pray for us. God, we thank you for your revealed word. We thank you for this group of men and women who are devoted to living a life faithful to you and meaningful to the context of the local church in which you have them in, God. God, I pray for clarity as we look into your word and as we discover together your purposes for each of us in service to you and each other. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So let me just grab this real quick. This passage, first of all, lets us see that your place within the church is part of a much bigger story. And it's far more important than simply where you choose to worship on Sunday mornings. Because you see, from the beginning of creation through the end of this age as we know it, God has been orchestrating something big and something glorious. And perhaps you may have never noticed this, but this is why we have the following six fixtures on the wall. And so we are reminded that, first of all, let me see if my flashlight works right here, right? First of all, God is a God of creation who made the heavens and the earth, as depicted in Genesis, as revealed in the scriptures, and as denoted by the tree here, symbolizes creation. After which came the fall, as Adam and Eve disobeyed God and introduced sin into the world, as marked by the X. And even in this falling world, God chooses a people for himself and makes a promise to them. He promises and points forward towards a Savior that would one day save his people from the grief of sin and death once and for all, as signified by the arrow pointing forward. And this promise, this fulfillment was realized the day that Jesus came, being eternally God, became flesh and fulfilled the work of redemption through his sinless ministry his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, as signified by the cross. After which came the establishment of the church era, which we are now a part of. And we find ourselves both looking back at Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, and looking forward to the promised return of our king, in which he will restore perfect harmony with his people and establish the new heavens and the new earth. So the church era, looking back and looking forward, and restoration when our savior king comes back and rules and establishes. So 
All that to say is that we are a part of a much bigger narrative than simply what or where we choose to worship on any given week. And God, as a big God, has a big story. And the beginning of verse 7 states that the end of all things is at hand. It means that our part in God's overarching story is essentially within the cusp of the conclusion of that story. And so it's by no coincidence that we find ourselves here now within this realm of God's story. And even before the foundation of the world, God chose you, Christian, church member, believer, to be a part of this story within this specific era where the end of all things is at hand. So one of the first points that can be made for your role in the church is that in essence, it's preparing you for eternity. That as you commit yourself on a weekly basis to the gathering of God's people in the worship of God, it is in preparation for when Christ returns, gathers his people, and we corporately worship him in perfect fellowship and the grandeur of his glory is fully revealed, and the perfection of his sovereignty is acknowledged over all the earth. Big God doing big things, and we're all here for that. And as you notice that one of the distinctive values, the priorities within the vision that Chuck shared earlier is just that. Number one, big God. Our God is glorious in every way and rules over all as the sovereign king. So we seek to worship him passionately and submit to him completely every moment of every day. Because that's what we'll be doing forever and ever and ever and ever. And in preparation for his return, we do so together every day. And I think the reality of the first half of verse 7, in terms of the urgency of things being at hand, is also why things like strategic witnessing is something that we value. Because we recognize that we who have heard the gospel clearly and know God, we understand that the end of all things is nothing but a wonderful and glorious truth for us personally. And yet those who do not know Christ has an eternal damnation and will no longer have the opportunity to respond to the gospel because that era will be over. And so as we find ourselves here and now, there is an urgency for us to not only be a part of the church collectively and to worship together, but to invite others to do the same as we faithfully spread the gospel and share the good news 
with a sense of urgency that tomorrow is not promised for anyone because our king can come at any moment. Amen? And so continuing on to the latter half of verse 7, it says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Right? In light of Christ's impending return, we are called to be self-controlled and sober-minded. So we're still in verse 7. Now, the second half of verse 7 points to the reality of living a righteous and holy life. Because contextually, verse 7 is in contrast to a passage earlier in verse 3. So verse 3, if I read it to you, it says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. So verse 3 focuses on the time that is past and how that was marked by living in sensuality, essentially living in the flesh. And you contrast that to verse 7, which now focuses on the time at hand, and how that focuses on a call to live a self-controlled life, to be sober-minded, and to live a life dependent on God by way of prayer. And so yet another distinctive that comes to mind is the, um, I think there was even a question about it, but just the reality of a conscious dependence, right? That irrespective of the particulars that you find yourself in, right, whatever your spiritual gifts may be or whatever particular ministry area that you're in, that part of your role within the church, part of your place within the church is a specific dependence and a conscious dependence on God. And that can be drawn out in that latter half of verse 7. We live a life of prayer. We patiently suffer as we fight temptations daily and deal with the continued effects of the fall with our physical ailments and mental frailness. We consciously depend on God and his Holy Spirit as we seek to live, to live the righteous and holy life he's called us to. Now, your role within the church, your place within the church certainly includes the benefit of being edified by others, of being, administ- of being ministered to, and being strengthened by those around you. But it is not void of your personal responsibility towards self-control and sober-mindedness. And our place within the church as individuals should also be characterized by a commitment towards prayer. It is one of the means in which God graciously allows us to depend on him. Prayer in the life of our church is far more than just an obligation and a formality. It is an acknowledgement that we consciously do in 
understanding that our ministries are not effectively possible unless we constantly depend on God. And so, again, irrespective of your spiritual gifts and the ways in which God has um, gifted you, right, and how well your talents are, our dependence on God is primarily displayed through our commitment to prayer. This is why prayer is an integral part of everything we do. Every Sunday morning in our weekly gatherings, we have an element for prayer. Every members meeting, we have an element for prayer. Our staff meetings, prayer. Directors meetings, prayer. Elders meetings, prayer. Our music rehearsals, prayers. Our staff devotionals, we have an element of prayer. And so you name it, there is in essence what we do embedded within that, the reality that we are depending on God for the sake of the effectiveness of the ministries. And that conscious dependence is one in which we do corporately and we're intentional about and leadership is very intentional about, but that you are also responsible for within your particular role in ministry, that you are depending on God no matter what your particular tasks may be. And, and lastly, to conclude our focus on verse 7, um, if you notice, the reality of prayer is almost assumed. The imperative within the context of the passage is not to pray right? It says, therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, right? And it's also a plurality of prayers. There's almost this assumption that prayers is something that just happens and that is embedded within our lifestyles as Christians and certainly within our roles of a church, within a church, and this is not to guilt trip anyone into praying more. Rather, it's to free us to think rightly and to pray effectively. And it's also not sort of this nuanced, um, strategic um, piety in which 24-7 all we're doing is walking around and praying. It's more so the incorporation of prayer in everything that we do. I'm watching Thursday night football. I love the Dolphins. I went to high school in Miami. And starting quarterback Tua gets injured. Uh, quite horrifically, actually. And here I am thinking I've just witnessed a paralytic injury right in front of my eyes. And the first thing I do in that moment is I'm shocked, right? They show the, tw the fingers twirling. A lot of you have seen that footage. But I've also have heard that Tua confesses to be a believer. And so I, I just began to pray for him. That, yeah, football is entertaining and I'm watching it on TV, but this is a real human being. This is someone who claims to be a believer. And as a brother in Christ, I am praying for him. I am thinking rightly about the whole situation. Right? And, and all of the ordeal about, did he have a concussion last week and was he lying about it? 
I'm thinking about the reality of, God, I pray that in whatever ways you would use this moment and this opportunity to, to bring forth a conviction of the priority of truth. That at the end of the day, Tua can stand before whoever it may be within the NFL and speak truthfully because that is within the character of God. And so even in watching football, there is a moment and an element in which to pray. And then during the games, there's always commercials. Within the commercials, there's nowadays a whole bunch of political ads. And it's usually something along the lines of, Mark Kelly is a horrible human being. <laughs> Blake Masters is a horrible human being. Right? Carry on and on and on. Right? And it's, it's easy to understand the millions of dollars that's been put into these ads to generate and drum up, right, sort of these intense emotions towards whatever political backing you may be. But as a believer, right, and within that realm, I can step back and pray. Pray for wisdom, pray for guidance as I consider my civic duty to vote and how to best do so and for which candidate to do so. Pray for the offices that are, you know, our elections are being held for and consider the biblical purposes of government and praying for the leaders that are now looking to potentially transition or remain in power. And so there is always an avenue and an element of depending on God, even in our daily lives and even in the mundane things as watching Thursday night football and commercials. We move on and focus on verse 8. And what we'll notice is quite a few things. Verse 8 says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so the next foundational framework in terms of our place in the church is one that Chuck touched on even last Sunday during the sermon. Love God, people. Love God and love people, right? And this truth is also reflected, if you notice carefully, as the preamble was being read, and Zach clapped afterwards. Sorry, Zach. Um, <laughs> right? And as the preamble talked about the primary way we glorify God, it says that it is through our life together as a church as this community of Christians demonstrates Jesus' love through our love for one another. And so again, whatever spiritual gift you may have, and wherever your area of ministry may be, your role within the church, your place within this church, your contributions within the church must be motivated by love for one another. Our love towards one another is an earnest commitment that allows us to mature and get past some of our flaws. 
I believe that's part of the notion behind the second half of verse 8, in which it says, love covers a multitude of sins. And perhaps a way of an example would, would be helpful to illustrate. I was in a meeting this week, and I got unnecessarily amped up about something. Like, in a very unhelpful way that did not contribute at all to sort of the fullness of the conversation. And frankly, with an attitude that reflected an antithesis of the patience, the kindness, and the gentleness that we see in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, as I was speaking, I was not fully aware of that attitude, nor my demeanor in the moment. But by God's grace, several people in the room, who are also in this room right now, showed me what 1 Peter 4.8 is really all about. Chuck lovingly called me out without actually calling me out. You know how he does that? Like, he'll say, like, yeah. Anyways. Um, while others demonstrated what a loving tone in a meaningful discussion ought to look and sound like. And as blatant as my sinful attitude was in that moment, the love expressed in that room allowed me to see things for what they truly were and to repent of my angst and ultimately to mature in understanding this area of growth that has now been revealed to me through the love of others. So as we love one another, we help each other mature spiritually by metaphorically absorbing some of the shock waves caused by our imperfections. And so I think as we look at value number four, for example, meaningful membership, right? The truth of verse eight is the whole premise behind that idea and that we are committed to each other and we help each other follow Christ throughout the week. Moving on to verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I believe that meaningful membership also ties into this verse, right? We share life together. That includes our homes, that includes our meals, that includes our hobbies, that includes our resources. Mi casa is... Ah, si, si. Mi casa is su casa. Okay, not a lot of people know Spanish. Um, literally, um, my house, my home is your home in Spanish. But it's this, it's this welcoming idea that as someone is hospitable, it's as if you are welcomed to my home as if it's yours. And our homes, I think, is something that we have to be mindful of even within the place, our place in the church. Because this is something we have to be especially intentional about, given how our culture is steeped in autonomy. 
Our homes are fortresses. They're silos with ring doorbells and cameras that ensures that no one dare to intrude, right? And I'm all for home security, don't get me wrong, um, and I'm all for you having your own spot, but the Bible is also all for us being hospitable, and that being a distinct mark and a priority in how we live. And we are called to be hospitable without grumbling. And so I think, you know, by way of implication, another, another foundational element in terms of your place is this. Um, no matter what your spiritual gifts are or what area of ministry you serve in, 1300 South Mill Avenue should not be the only place where that ministry takes place. And it should also not be the only place where you fellowship with other believers. That by default, we would be a people committed to each other, even in the sharing of our lives, our resources, and our homes. Our homes ought to be a long-term part of our lifelong ministry efforts. Perhaps that's inviting an international student to share a Thanksgiving meal. Perhaps that's providing shelter for someone who's been temporarily displaced. Perhaps that's inviting someone to your next outdoor adventure. And preferably, if there's a Jeep involved, call me, please. 23924, okay. But at the end of the day, we share our lives and our resources, and we are hospitable to one another. All right. And lastly, we'll be looking at spiritual gifts within the context of this passage. And this leads us to verses 10 and 11, which says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I think it's fascinating that this passage itself does not list out the spiritual gifts, right? And everything that's been leading up to verses 10 and 11 has been more so by way of sort of the paradigm, the framework in which our spiritual gifts are ultimately exercised. And so as we look now at verses 10 and 11, this passage does share a few things in terms of the realities of spiritual gifts, though it does not list them specifically. First of all, we each have at least one gift, right? Look again at verse 10, as each has received. A gift. So there's at least one gift that we each have. And the passage goes on to say, use it to serve one another. 
as good stewards of God's very grace. So the second observation is that we see that there's a variety of gifts. And God's grace varies in how he has gifted each one of us. And we each have our own unique gifts as given to us by by God. And as I've mentioned, this passage does not list out the gifts, but what it does do is it categorizes sort of the two main buckets, right? So the two main categories in which the spiritual gifts do fall under. The first being speaking and the second being serving, right? Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so there's these two main categories in which the spiritual gifts fall under. And so things like the gift of teaching or the gift of exhorting are all within speaking gifts. And things like acts of mercy or the gift of service itself would fall under the category of serving gifts. And so as we consider some of the distinctives, the priorities, the values that Chuck shared with us earlier, one of which was word work. And that is an obvious one in terms of the commitment of the church towards the word of God. But it's also one that at Church on Mill we take very seriously. And so part of the reason why we approach sermons the way we do in terms of expository preaching or even in terms of the sequential nature in which we go verse by verse throughout a book is because we understand that for the person who is gifted in teaching, they are speaking as if it is the very oracle of God. And they are strategically going through as much of the Bible within the context of the book as possible. And so they are not here to just skip through the Bible and just kind of proclaim their own thing or be a strong personality for people to like and sort of sprinkle verses here and there. They are here to help the people of God understand God's word and to exhort the people of God by their gifting in the ways that they preach and present the word. And they are also here in terms of the gifted teachers to be blessed and to be encouraged by you. Because the work of the ministry, irrespective of the gift, is partly so that as verse 10 mentions, we serve one another. And thinking about another value in terms of our joyful obedience, right? It's this reality that we are not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. And as people committed to the body of Christ within this local church, we 
week in and week out, consider what the implications of God's word is to our lives each and every single day. Now, I, I want to conclude by the way that the text concludes, and it's this. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And so as you consider your role, as you consider your place within the church, it is ultimately for the glory of God. Now, I know there's a lot of questions in terms of, well, how do I find my spiritual gift, right? Like, what particular area of ministry do I get plugged in? And I think that's also part of the beauty of the church, that by God's design, he allows each of us the context in which we can actually figure that out, that it's not formulaic, um, but as we consider the needs that are within the church and we consider the ways in which God has wired us, that we seek to join a particular ministry, we seek to do particular ministerial activities and duties in accordance to that sense of alignment. And it is through sort of that desire to serve and that willingness to do so and through the feedback of other members of the church who could say, wow, you are really gifted in this. Or, wow, you seem, you seem to be particularly gifted in this area. Have you ever considered X? Or uh, maybe this is not for you, right? That God uses one another for the edification of one another and for the building up of his church. And so as we look at our vision and as we look at the values thereof, we as individuals have a specific part to play. We are wired a specific way. We are gifted in a specific way. But far more than just focusing on the particulars of what is it that I should do, this passage helps us to sort of have the right paradigm around how to consider our contributions to begin with. That no matter what we do, we are motivated by love to do so. That no matter what our areas of giftings are, that we understand that God has a continued purpose and a continued will as we find ourselves on the cusp of his return and we seek to glorify him and we seek to share the gospel with our neighbors and we seek to edify and mature one another as we disciple each other in the faith. And so that is what I wanted to share with you. At this time, I will pause and ask for any questions. Thoughts, comments, feedback, questions? Yes.
So um, you are talking about verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So, so I think in terms of the reference to speaking, I, I think it is sort of referencing the overall categories of the speaking nature of some of the spiritual gifts. And in thinking about, for example, the gift of teaching, that whoever is teaching is not depending on their talents or is not looking to be, you know, the next big cool thing, but is really considering that their teaching is in alignment with God's word and that the very act of teaching God's word is as if God himself is proclaiming the truth because that is in essence what the gift of teaching is for. So I think the, the reference to speaking is sort of thinking about the categories of the speaking nature of some of the spiritual gifts and in teaching in particular, um, the purpose behind that is to speak as if it is the oracles of God because the Bible is. Any other questions or comments? Yes. That's a good question. Um, Chuck, I defer to you for a response, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I should. <laughs> All right. Um, I, experientially, I think the ways in which God has allowed me to, um, to discover some of my giftings are both and. So, you know, I think there's been a clear sense that you know, it's, it's, it's more than just, um, but I really felt a, a deep sense of sort of God's calling or God's unique gifting in my life towards looking at the scriptures as a way to sort of serve him in, in the role of a teacher. Um, but that's something that I still had to explore. That's something that I still needed to have affirmed by others, by elders. Um, it's not something that I, I would just sort of assume to be the case. But I would say there was sort of a strong sense e internally. I've also been at a church where we need a bass player. There's no one to play bass. And I've never played bass in my life, but there's a need. And um, I like music. I don't know if I necessarily wanted to play the bass, but I'll try it. And through sort of that process discovering okay like there's actually is you know a, a desire and a gifting there thereof so um i will say that sort of the trappings of um god called me towards a particular ministry um i think that's something we have to be careful of but that being said i do want to acknowledge that there are times when we have a strong sense towards something um that that the Lord may actually be using as a way to reveal his gifting in our lives. Am I 
Thank you, Ted. Thanks. Okay. That, uh, that was really helpful. I'd only add one thing. In the circles that I grew up in, um, people used calling language constantly. Um, and um, in that kind of environment, it becomes a way that you can trump anyone's disagreement with you. Um, so if I'm called to, God called me to this, then n most of us are not going to say, no, he didn't. Um, and so it becomes easily manipulated. And on the other hand, it can be used as an excuse. I'm not going to do X thing that's just normal Christianity because I don't feel called to it. Does God set um, people toward particular things in particular ways? Yes. But how do you know you're called to something? Uh, you, you know because it's in the rearview mirror. It's happened. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, we just, we in very intentionally don't use that language. Not because God doesn't do that, but because it just gets sideways so quickly. And we want to look to outward, external, what does he say in his word? And as you delight yourself in the Lord, he puts his desires in your heart. And if you want to pursue something and it's not driven by some prideful, sinful thing and you're competent at it, go for it. He's given us the freedom to do that. And if it really clicks and works and is effective and you keep doing it, there might be a sense in which you could say, God called me to that. But uh, we just don't think the, the kind of trump card is very helpful to normal church life. And we just, so we just avoid using it. That's the only thing I would add. If, if, uh, if I've offended anyone in that, it's not my intention. Um, again, I grew up really steeped in that. Um, and I understand it. And there are benefits to it. There's more drawbacks than benefits, in our opinion. But if you feel called to use called, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> Thanks, family. All right, perhaps one or two more questions. Anyone else? All right, if not, let's go ahead and take a longer break, and we'll get back together at the top of the hour.